I want you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Joshua chapter 18 this morning as we open the Word of the Lord. Uh, you'll want to have the text in front of you because we're going to read together and go through um, a lot of, I think, important truth in this chapter. Joshua chapter 18. As we begin, though, let's go to the Lord and let's ask His blessing this morning. Father, we are so grateful to be joining together both here physically in this room and and others watching, whether it is from home or from even in a hospital room or or on vacation or or, uh, some who are stationed abroad. What a joy to be collectively gathered in your name to honor and worship you, to open your word and to hear from you. Father, may our hearts be ready, our ears be attentive, and may you speak through your word, through your Holy Spirit, to instruct us that we might become more like Jesus. So to that end, we commit ourselves, we ask your blessing on us in this time, in Jesus' name, amen. A good many years ago, I had the blessing of being with a number of our chapel folks on a mission trip down into Guatemala. We've made a number of those throughout the years. And on this trip, we were in a rather remote area of Guatemala. And someone said, you know, there's a small village near here that's well known for their quality pottery. And so we we took a little stop by this village. And there, as we were walking just into the into town, we passed a little adobe home, and coming off the home, there was a little lean-to, and there was a uh, there was a potter at work, and so we stopped and and uh, kind of gathered around and watched, and we saw this small Guatemalan lady dressed in her typical native garb, and and she took a a hunk of well-chosen clay and plopped it on the wheel, the little stone potter's wheel that was. I don't know how it was rigged, but it had a little, some pedals and leather straps and she could move her feet and this wheel turned and, and she carefully transformed that lump of clay into a very useful and very beautiful pot. And she used techniques that have been similar to those that potters have used all over the world for thousands of years. And I imagined that day as I watched her work that it was very similar to this scene that we find here in Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18, the Lord sends Jeremiah, the prophet, on a field trip. And so let's pick it up in verse 1 here of Jeremiah 18. Follow along as I read. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. And so I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. And then the word of the Lord came to me. So Jeremiah goes down to this potter's house. He observes a skilled potter at work. 
But somewhere in the midst of the creative process, as the potter is shaping and forming this clay, as the wheel is spinning, something goes awry. Something goes wrong. And it says it was spoiled. The, the, the pot didn't work. It fell apart or it was misshapen. We don't know what was wrong. It may have been that there was some impurity in the clay, some other dirt that's not clay or, or a rock, or maybe the, the clay was too dry in a spot, or maybe part of it was too wet. But whatever happened, the, the potter is at work and then he, he does something, maybe pulls a little something out or adds something and then begins to reshape it and make the pot into something different. And as Jeremiah is observing, God speaks. God says there's a point to this field trip. This field trip is an object lesson. What you're observing here has a comparison to a lesson and to real life. Pick it up in verse 6. O house of Israel, this is God's message to Israel through Jeremiah. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I have intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. God says that He is He has likened Himself to the potter. A potter works with a hunk of clay, transforming it and crafting it into something useful, something beautiful. God, however, as the supreme potter, works not with clay, but with people. Maybe God deliberately chose this illustration because He formed man from the very dust of the earth. But he says that Israel here, God is like the potter, Israel is like the clay. And God is desiring to work with Israel to His chosen people to shape them, to make them into something useful and beautiful, a people of godly beauty. And God says, in the process of this, God says that He is sovereign. He is in charge. He has control over Judah or Israel. By the way, those terms are used synonymously here in this passage. We know Israel was all the people of Israel. We know the kingdom divided hundreds of years before this. The northern kingdom has been, has been destroyed. The southern kingdom, Judah, is around. But some of the remnant of the northern kingdom is here. And anyway, sometimes these terms are used interchangeably. So just don't get confused. If I say Judah or Israel here, talking about the same people as the text does here as well, uses both. But God says that he has control over 
Judah, this nation, this people of Judah and Israel, just like the potter has control of a lump of clay. And that God has the authority, He has the right, He has the power to do with the clay as He desires. He can exalt them, He can humble them, He can prosper them, or He can destroy them. God is sovereign. The message we find in the next verse. What's the point of this object lesson? Verse 11. Now therefore, say to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. You see, the nation of Israel was birthed back when God brought the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. That's when the nation was born. They went into Egypt as the descendants of Abraham, a family of Abraham. And over 400 years in Egypt, they grew from a family to a nation. God delivered them from slavery, brought them out of Egypt, and God promised blessings upon them, even as He had promised to their ancestor Abraham that He would greatly bless His descendants. God promised blessing upon these people, and God took them through the wilderness to the land of Palestine, gave them the land, and as He gave them the land and they were moving in, God promised blessings upon them if they would follow Him. There was a covenant, a contract made with them that God made with them that if you follow me, I'll bless you. He also, with the contract, there were, there were promises that if you, if you neglect me, if you turn from me, then I will, instead of bringing blessings upon you, I will bring curses upon you. And God says here that because of their continued evil, for centuries they have been running from God. That God has changed His intention and now He is shaping this clay for disaster. He's going to bring judgment on them. And yet, even now, He's saying, if you, people of Judah, will turn from your evil ways, I will revoke the disaster that is coming. The disaster that I've promised to send and I will instead bless you. And so the message here to the people of of Judah, the people of Israel, is this, that Israel, Judah, has a choice. First choice, repent, change from your evil ways and follow God. God says you will escape judgment. You will be reshaped. Instead of being destined for judgment, I'll reshape and I'll make you into something useful Beautiful. Or, option two, keep going the way you're going and I will destroy you. What are they going to do? they got a choice. Their response is in verses 12 through 18. But they say, this is in vain. We will follow our own plans and we will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, thus says the Lord, ask among the nations, who has heard of the like of this? The virgin Israel has done a very horrible thing. 
Does the snow of Lebanon leave the crags of Syrian? Do the mountain waters run dry, the cold flowing streams? But my people have forgotten me and they make offerings to false gods and they make them stumble in their ways in the ancient roads to turn on the side roads, not the highway. Walk, making their land a horror, a thing to be hissed at forever. And everyone who passes by is horrified and shakes his head. And like the east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their calamity. Their answer is they won't listen. They will declare and they declare here their intention to keep going their own way. Not to turn and follow God. And God is astounded at the stubbornness of their heart. Despite everything that God has said, despite everything that God has done through the centuries, God says, this is unheard of. Go look among the other nations. What other nation walks away from their God? And their gods aren't even gods. We saw that earlier back in one of the first lessons we had here in the book. That God was making that same case. Hey, Jeremiah, go check out. Go over here. Go over there. See what other nations have done this. This, this is unheard of. And these other nations worship gods that some guy made in his backyard out of scrap material. He says, these, the people of Israel, they know me, the living God, who has provided for them and cared for them and protected them and done miracles for them. And they're going off and serving other gods. This is unheard of. And it's illogical. It is stupid. The living God speaks and said, you've got an option. Turn from your sin and follow me and have blessing. Or keep doing what you're doing and I will destroy you. What's the obvious choice? We'll keep going our own way. Thank you very much. I said, I think sin makes us stupid. I think it kills brain cells. Literally, we get into sin and we do not think right. We do not think rationally. I've said this before. Other people look at us and go, are you an idiot? <laughs> Apparently. Well, God says, therefore, because that's their plan, God is going to send judgment. God is going to allow them to suffer the calamity and the judgment, the consequences of their sin. And he says, in that time, it's going to be so bad when everything's said and done, you know, some Yehu from wherever is going to pass through the, the region of Palestine, this land of Israel. They're going to pass by Jerusalem and they're going to look at all this stuff and they're going, so they're going to hiss. They're going to shake their head. They're just going to be amazed at the horror of all that has happened here. God says when that time, when it, the judgment comes, He says they will see My back and not My face. The point of that is God is saying that in that day, the Israelites are going to call upon God. God, help us! And God says at that time, I won't answer. You're going to call, but I'm not going to turn around and show you My face. These, this is a very severe warning. These are very scary words. They hear these and what is their response? Not only will they not listen, they decide they want to shoot the messenger. Verse 18. Then they said, Come, 
Let us make plots against Jeremiah. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come, let us strike him with the tongue, and let us not pay attention to any of his words. They don't like what Jeremiah is saying, so they want to go after him. In essence, what they say is, hey, forget Jerry. You know, forget all this talk of gloom and doom and judgment stuff. After all, they're saying, we're God's people. We still wear his name. We still got the bumper sticker on our chariot. You know, we are God's chosen people. We still have the priests and the elders and the other prophets who all tell us, hey, we're just fine. So find some way to shut Jerry up and let's ignore his words. By the way, we don't know the details of what happened here. Because it doesn't tell us what they tried to do to shut Jeremiah up. What we do know is they didn't succeed. They didn't shut Jeremiah up. And I don't think Jeremiah was intimidated. God told Jeremiah back in chapter 1, verse 6, when God called Jeremiah, He said, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them because I am with you to deliver you, declared the Lord. They won't be able to stop you. And Jeremiah, from what we can see of his ministry, he never backed down. He never let up. He was always faithful to say, here's what God says. He did endure persecution. He was beaten. He was even imprisoned. But they could never stop him. They could never prevent the Word of God from getting through this faithful man. By the way, here in chapter 18, they have a choice, as I've said. But sometime later, sometime after this, maybe it was just weeks after, maybe it was months after, maybe it was a a year or two or three after, we don't know the timeline. But sometime after this comes Jeremiah chapter 19. And we're not going to take the time to read it, but there's another field trip that happens in Jeremiah chapter 19. God says, hey, Jeremiah, take a trip and go to the potter's house. Now, maybe the same potter, maybe a different one. But this time he goes to the potter's house, not as an observer, not as someone to watch what's going on, but he goes as a customer. He's to go and buy a clay flask, a clay jar, a clay jug. And he does. And then he's to get a crowd of people and he he goes outside of town through the potsherd gate of Jerusalem outside and there at the valley of Hinnom is to stand on the edge and he's to take the clay pot and to cast it down and it shatters into a million pieces. And the message there that God gives to Jeremiah to tell the people there is that now it's too late. Again, weeks, months, years later, God says it's too late. The people of Judah have refused the warning. They've refused the invitation for rescue. They have, even as they had just declared they would do, they have chosen to go their own path and not to listen to God. And God says, now like this clay pot that was made and it once was pliable, but now it's been, it was put into the fire and it was hardened it is no longer pliable, and when, when you smash it, it doesn't go, it goes, 
God says, it's too late. The hearts of the people of Judah were no longer pliable. There's no longer a reworking this, a reshaping this. There's no longer a saving this pot. It's been hardened. Their hearts are hard. The only thing remaining is judgment. God says judgment is sure. It is certain. There is no turning back. What a very sad message. That's Jeremiah 18 and 19. The rest of chapter 18 is just Jeremiah's talking to God about just how bad things are. But what's God gave this message to Israel, to Judah, through Jeremiah some 2,600 years ago. And we might wonder, what in the world does that have to do with us today? 2021, United States of America. This is an interesting story. Thank you, Pastor, for sharing. Let's go home. What does this really have to do with me, with us today? I just want to call our attention to three of what I think are many possible lessons for us in this chapter. The three things that were laid upon my heart as I read through this passage this week. The first is this. Go back over to what I started as the first of the message. And that is that God is sovereign. God rules. He is the potter. He is the creator of all the universe, of all there is. He is our creator. And as our creator, He has both the right and He has the power. He has the authority to do whatever He wishes. He is the ultimate authority. There is no one above God. There is no celestial supreme court He has to answer to. He answers to no one. He does whatever He chooses. He is God. Brothers and sisters, quite frankly, that's a message we need to hear today. See, especially in our culture, maybe it's always been that way, but I see it so prevalent in our culture that we like to think that we are the authority. That we, mankind, are the ultimate authority. But contrary to our modern thinking, God doesn't need our approval. He doesn't need us to take a vote to see if He can do something. God's Word, God's decrees do not need to be updated to align with modern human sensibilities. Though I have heard numerous people in the last few years say just that. Well, you know, Christianity and the Bible and all these things, you know, they all need to be updated. They're outdated. It is a wise man who comes to understand that modern man's thinking needs to be aligned and subjugated to God's decrees. See, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so it is. It has always been that way and it still is today, even in 2021. And it will be that way every day of earth's history until the day that God remakes heaven and earth. And it will always be that way even through eternity. God is sovereign. 
someone once said, and I think they said it kind of tongue-in-cheek, the first and the most essential truth of the universe is there is a God. And the second most essential truth of the universe is it's not you. He is not you. Again, I think that's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but actually when we think of the first commandments that God gave, Exodus chapter 20, when God gave His law to the people of Israel, the first commandment of the first ten commandments, it was, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before Me. Not because God can't handle the competition. It's because there is no competition. There is only one God. Again, God says in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5, God says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. So a few verses after that in Verse 9 of Isaiah 45, Isaiah says along with Jeremiah this same thing. The proper response to God is to honor Him as God, to submit to Him and obey Him. And he uses this same illustration of the potter and the pot. He says this, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. In other words, woe to the man who strives with God. That man is a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Your work has no arms. Go and watch any potter at work. You will never hear the, the clay speak up to the potter and say, what are you doing? And yet that is what man does to God. What are you doing? Man argues with God. In our generation, I don't, haven't seen it before in, throughout most of human history. There have been a few times, I'm sure. But our generation is celebrating people who scream up at God, No. I will not be what you have made me to be. I am not what you have made me to be. And they deny the obvious reality that they are what they are, what God made them to be. It is the ultimate rebellion against God, and it's celebrated in our generation because, by and large, we live in a world that is in rebellion against God. The only reasonable and proper response to God is to honor Him as God, to submit to Him, obey Him, I love the way that James Weldon Johnson said it in the poem that he wrote called The Prodigal. There he said, young man, your arm's too short to box with God. We know those words ended up in some songs as well. That's the reality. God is God. He is in charge and it's a fool, as Isaiah said. Woe to him who refuses to honor God as God and submit to Him. A second truth that I think, a second lesson that we need to, to grasp here from the text is that God holds 
nations accountable. God is primarily speaking here in this passage. He's speaking, we see it all the way through, to the people of Judah, to the people of Israel. Because God had covenants with them. God, they, 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 God had made them His people. And God is speaking to them. But notice as we go back and look at, again, verses 7 through 10. Just notice as I read very quickly. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, notice the words I'm accentuating, then I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent to the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, then I will build and plant. You see, God isn't talking just here to Israel or Judah. He's talking about a nation, any nation. It is God who plants and who builds who plucks up and destroys nations, plural. The Bible tells us that. If our nation is is exalted, it's only because God exalts us. If our nation is laid low, it is because God has laid us low. And God here is telling us that He chooses to respond to each nation based upon their response to Him even as the potter responded to the changes in the clay. And he's saying, if they, if any nation will listen to him and turn from evil and do good, God will treat them well. And if any nation will persist in doing evil, God will bring disaster upon them. God deals with nations according to their deeds. If you doubt that, in fact, Jeremiah goes on. You get to Jeremiah chapters 46 through 51, and everything in Jeremiah 46 to 51 is a message from God to other nations, nations around Israel and Judah. Nine of them specifically are mentioned as God declares judgment on these other nations, even as He's declared judgment on Israel and Judah, God is declaring judgment on these other nations because of their sin. Now, why do I bring all that up? Because, brothers and sisters, I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. I don't have the gift of prophecy. But I can say, based upon the Word of God, from this passage and others, I can say confidently that unless there is a great revival and repentance in the United States of America, Unless there is a turning from evil that is in our land, then judgment is coming upon us. Maybe this week, maybe this year, maybe 50 years from now. I don't know when it will be. God promised judgment on the nation of Israel and Judah for a couple of centuries before it came. Why? Because God is patient and He kept giving them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to change. Ultimately, they refused to do it. And as we saw, or as we talked in the next chapter, God says, okay, now it's too late. There's going to come a time, unless we repent, that our nation 
will be judged. I don't like to say that, but it's I can't escape it from Scripture. A few decades ago, one of our former pastors, Jim Kane, he used to say, if God doesn't judge America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, in the decades since Jim said that, the evil in our land has only gotten more and more blatant, more and more perverse, more and more pervasive, and even to the point where so many things that are considered evil are celebrated as good. I'm afraid judgment is coming. If you don't believe that we live in a sinful, evil land, you don't even have to talk to Christians to realize that's true. Go talk to most of your neighbors who all they have to do is turn on the TV or go to their computer and just see the, the stupid, awful, raunchy stuff that's going on in our country. The violence, the hatred, the animosity, the greed, the selfishness, the immorality. So what are we to do as godly people as Christians in such a time, as believers in Jesus, what are we to do in light of this truth that God holds nations accountable and we live in a land that is filled with evil? Well, let me suggest five things. First, we are to confess and repent of our own sin. Because the reality is every one of us are guilty as well. In some manner, to some degree, we are all sinners. I can't recall off the top of my head who it was that said it. One of the great revivalists of, I think, the past century said, if you want revival, he said, draw a circle on the ground and then step in it and then ask God to send revival on everybody inside the circle. I think he's right. Which brings me to the second thing we need to do, and that is we need to pray. We need to pray for revival in our country. Thirdly, we need to then live faithful and godly lives. We need to repent of our own sin, and then we need to start doing what is right. The Bible calls us to that. The Apostle Paul, writing to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15, calls for us to live as blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation. If it was true of that time, it's true of ours. And he says, by the way, as he goes on, if we'll do that, he says we will be among them and shine among them as lights in the world. I like the way it says in the New International Version, it says, as we will shine as stars in the universe against the blackness of the night sky. That's what God wants for us as His people in such a time as this. That we don't live corrupted by our culture, but we live faithfully serving Christ. Along with that, we are not to be those who simply go and condemn the world around us you know, hold up placards and stick them in our neighbor's front yard. You sinner! You're going to hell because you're such a rotten, awful sinner! Well, it may be true, but that's not what God calls us to do, to stand in judgment, because what are we? 
We are sinners who have been redeemed and transformed by the grace of Christ, not because of our own goodness and our own worth. We are to declare the grace of God. We are not only to declare it, we are to demonstrate it. The Scripture calls for you and me to be people who demonstrate the grace and the love of God in the way that we love and care for those around us. And we need to be faithful to share the good news, the gospel, that there is salvation through Jesus. Anyone who will turn and put their faith in Christ may be saved. That's what we're to do in such a time as this. And by God's grace, if people will respond and turn to follow Him, God may stay His hand of judgment and stay His hand for a few more years, maybe even a few more centuries, that more people may yet come to Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3, that's why Jesus hasn't returned yet. God isn't slow about His promise about Jesus' return, but He's giving opportunity for one more person, for one more person to find grace because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The third lesson for us from this is I look at this potter and I realize that the potter has a design, a plan, a purpose for the clay. God had a design, a plan, a purpose for Israel. Brothers and sisters, from one, as one lump of clay to another, I say that God has a plan and a purpose for you and a plan and a purpose for me. We just saw what some of that is, to be blameless, innocent, pure children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse or twisted generation. But here's the problem. See, God has a purpose for us. We need to desire God's purpose for us. See, I go back to Judah, and Judah's problem was not that they didn't believe in God. You see... The people of Israel, the people of Judah, believed in God. They believed that Yahweh was God, that He was the Creator of the universe, that He created them. They believed that God chose them out of all the peoples, out of all the nations of the earth, and declared them to be His people. They believed that God rescued them out of Egypt, out of bondage to slavery, and bondage to sin, and brought them to the land of promise. He gave them His law. God gave them His Word. God gave them the land as an inheritance. They believed all those things. They enjoyed having the label, people of God. They enjoyed having those bumper stickers on their chariots, you know. We're God's people. They wore the t-shirts. They enjoyed having, you know, we've got God's Word. The rest of the world didn't. We have God's Word. They enjoyed having the, the rituals of worship and they enjoyed having the, the priesthood and the prophets. They enjoyed all of those things. Their problem through their history wasn't they rejected all those things and threw it all out the window. The problem was that, see, they believed in God, but they didn't believe God. You see, 
whenever God's purpose, whenever God's intentions, whenever God's plans were different than their own plans and their own intentions and their own desires, they said, Oh God, we love you. We like you. Uh, we enjoy having your name on us. We enjoy these things, but we want to go this way. That was the whole thing with idolatry. It wasn't because they didn't think God existed. It's because if we follow these idols, we get some things that God doesn't let us have, or we get things, you know, that we don't think God approves of, or we get some things that we don't think God will give us. We don't really trust that God is going to give us what we want. They thought, see, they had some good things in their mind that they wanted, and they didn't think that either, they either thought that God wasn't capable of giving it or that God simply wouldn't give it to them. And so they said, we're going to, we have a better plan. We're going to go get this ourselves. It was a disastrous plan. But that's what they've been doing for centuries. Naming them, themselves as God's people while chasing their own desires and their own interests and their own plans and snubbing their nose at God. Before we're too hard on them, by the way, um, notice we see it back in verse 11. Let's just go back and look there. Where God calls and He says, Return everyone from his evil ways. Amend your, your ways and your deeds. But they say, verse 12, this is vain. What that literally means is this is useless. It's hopeless. It ain't never going to happen. God says, come back. They say, "Eh, ain't never going to happen. Why? Next phrase. Verse 12. We will follow our own plans. There it is right there. Black and white. God, we don't like your direction. Thank you very much. We believe in you, but we don't believe you. And so we're going to go our own way. And we look at them and we say, what idiots. But before we are so harsh in judging them, Does it sound familiar at all to you? Because you see, when I look in the mirror, I realize it sounds really familiar to me. All too often. We're we're quick to congratulate ourselves and pat ourselves on the back. You see, we believe that there is only one God. He's the Creator God. He made everything. He made us. We believe this is His Word. We believe that God became man and walked among us in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus came to bear the penalty of our sin upon the cross as He died on the cross. And that He rose again victorious over sin and death three days later. And we believe that as the Scripture says, that anyone who will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be rescued from sin that they will become a new creation, that they will have an eternal destiny in heaven. New life, eternal life, all these things. We congratulate ourselves, pat ourselves on the back. We believe the truth. We believe in God and we believe in the truth. But the question, brothers and sisters, are do we believe God? And the reality is, in the darkness of my own heart at times, I don't believe God enough sometimes to follow Him. I go my own way. 
I say, God, I believe you. I believe in you. I believe all these things. But I have a better plan. Anybody else struggle with that sometimes? No. I think it would be every one of us, wouldn't it? You see, these things are here. It says in Corinthians, these things were written for us. The, the history of, of the Israelites, of the Judites here, is written for us for our learning. So that we can see ourselves in these people and go, Oh, I'm a Judahite. <laughs> I'm an Israelite. I am like that. So that we can learn and not follow in their footsteps because their path was a disaster. We say we believe in God until we don't. That's our struggle, isn't it? When we don't believe, when we don't trust God as the great potter, the great trustworthy and loving potter, when we don't believe that His way is the best way, then brothers and sisters, we will end up hurting ourselves and hurting others by excusing and rationalizing and justifying and indulging and tolerating our little forays going down our own path into sin. And one thing we should also learn and see from Scripture as well as from our own experience, sin always brings hurt, doesn't it? When we don't believe when we don't trust God, the great potter, the loving, faithful, trustworthy potter, when we don't trust Him, when we don't trust that His way is best, then we will end up squandering our time and our energies and our life on things that don't matter and are of little value. We will chase and pursue the almighty dollar, which is not almighty at all. We will chase and pursue possessions and houses and pleasures and popularity and all of these other things which in the end will be worth zero. Nothing. When we don't believe, when we don't trust that God, the great and loving potter, we don't believe that He is trustworthy and that His way is best, we will miss out on the blessings that come from trusting the potter and cooperating with the potter, following the potter. Because with Him... There's a joy of fellowship in walking with the Almighty God, which is what we were designed to do, was to have fellowship and relationship with Him. That's what we were made for. We miss out on seeing God accomplish and work through us to accomplish His purpose. We were created in Christ Jesus, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 for good works which God designed in advance or prepared in advance for us to do. Before the world was created, God created things for you to do. He knew you. He knew what you were going to do. And He designed you to do 
to do certain things. When we cooperate with the potter and trust the potter, we will see every day of our lives, we will see God do things in us and through us that we never imagined. Not because we're so special, but because the potter is so amazing that he takes this little lump of clay, me, you, and he does stuff with us. We miss that. We don't trust him. And we miss out on the blessing of rewards in heaven, which the Bible says that God has in store for any of us who follow Him, who serve Him, who love Him. There are rewards that come. We miss out on those when we chase our own way. I could go on and on, but don't you see? This message of judgment to the people of Israel is a message of love to you and me. It's a call for us to not go chasing our own path, but to trust the potter. To follow the potter. That's the great message of this passage. It's a great encouragement for you and me as lumps of clay to trust the great and loving potter. Father, we needed this. Because every one of us knows that there is a tendency of our heart, there is a tendency of us to go our own way, to think somehow that we know more than you do, we know better than you do, and we care more about our own life than you do. The reality is you care more about us than we care about ourselves. The reality is you know far more about us and what we really need and what we really desire than we know about ourselves. The reality is, is you know more about uh, what we were made for and you know more about who we are and you know more about how this world is and how this world works and what eternity is than we ever can imagine. And we don't trust you because we think we're so smart. Forgive us, God, for our pride and our arrogance. Forgive us for our failure. Forgive us for our tendency to act like the Israelites here. So sometimes even when we are confronted with the choice, we know we need to either follow you or we go our own way, which could lead to disaster. We choose to go our own way. God, forgive us for that and change us. Reshape us. Give us hearts that trust You, that follow You, that we might enjoy the great blessings that come from trusting You, our potter. So we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.